Okay, well, it's great to see everybody. Sorry I took a hiatus for two weeks over here. Been uh, a lot of fun. In case you want to see everybody, it's been a lot of fun. Um, but we can't. It says in Judaism, if you do something three weeks in a row, it's considered a chazaka, it's set in stone. So I couldn't, God forbid, go three weeks without a class. So uh, <laughs> now you know you're stuck with me. Um, on that note, more importantly, we can't go three weeks without a joke. So uh, there's a, uh, huh? He's winding up. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm winding up, I think. Um, so a customer walks into a store and says, I'd like to buy a watch that tells time. And uh, the clerk says, I'm sorry, uh, we don't have any of those. All, all our watches you have to look at. Oh, although that doesn't really apply nowadays because today you have watches that will tell you the where, time. Where, where, where is the joke? I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Um, you know, I was looking up time jokes because uh, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot, a lot of... We're going to be talking about time. Um, but there really aren't very many. I'm just looking here. I have a whole list here. None of them are really that good. Uh, <laughs> well, here, here's here's one that you'd probably like. All right. When is the best time to go shopping? When the store is open. Okay. All right. That's called an anti-joke. <laughs> um, the final one. All right. One that might be actually slightly a joke. Why couldn't the clock be kept in jail? because the time was always running out. Okay, all right. Now we're gonna move on because none of these time jokes are good. It's about time we started this, oh. okay? Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. But really, you gotta, watch <laughs> you gotta watch me, huh? Oh, okay. <laughs> but really, tonight is all gonna be about timing, really. It's all about timing. And that's because as we'll learn, we're gonna explore the destruction of the temple, the nine days, which is, of course, a, a the saddest time period in the Jewish calendar. And we will explore the timing of when we do some of the customs and why it seemingly wouldn't make sense. But once we get to the deeper meaning, it will make sense. So just to give you the order of the class where we're going to go with this today, we're going to discover the nine days and Tisha B'Av, which is the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. We're going to understand a little bit of its meaning, its laws, and its customs. And through discovering that, we will get to the official topic of the class, which is seeing the positive and the negative. And that's particularly important now when we are in the saddest time period of the Jewish calendar. Uh, one of the positives <clears throat> that is in this time of the Jewish calendar is if you can't come to class here live, there's brownies over there. Um, so even though I was going to offer you the wine, but you can't drink wine and don't whine about it. But even though, even though you can't eat meat, you can have brownies, okay? All right, so let's get right into it. Let's jump right into it. And um, just checking Facebook is all good. Facebook is all good, awesome, okay. Um, in a couple days, we are going to mark Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av means literally the ninth of Av. So when you hear somebody say Tisha B'Av, it means the ninth of Av, it's a day on the calendar. What is important about that day on the calendar? Well, first of all, the month of Av, is a month on the Jewish calendar. So you gotta know there's 12 months on the Jewish calendar in some years, in some years it's 13. So knowing the names of the month and Tisha in Hebrew or Tisha, some people call it, means nine. So Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. What happened? <clears throat> the holy temples were destroyed. 
amongst many other terrible calamities, which we are not going to dwell on tonight. But in general, it's a bad, bad time uh, for the Jewish people. In general, these nine days, it's considered an inauspicious time. If you have a court case, or you want to buy something expensive, or um, uh, don't do dangerous activities, in general, it's, it's not a good time of the year. Um, it's not a good time of the year. Okay. Uh, good evening. Okay, so in general, it's not a it's not a great time of year. We're going to dwell into specifically the ninth of Av, and we're going to start with a uh, the story as it is told by Josephus. So, what do we know about the destruction of the second temple? You know, the first temple was really earlier on in history. The destruction of the second temple was about 70 CE, in the common era, around that time. And therefore, it is more in the common era. There's a lot more historical records about that time. As you can imagine, it was also the, the height of the Roman Empire. But there's a lot more written about it. But there are none more famous than Josephus. And Josephus, of course, is a famous historian world over, but even in Jewish, good evening, everybody, good evening, welcome, welcome, but even in um, Jewish sources, Josephus is considered a very important source. In fact, in Jewish law, it talks about, like, uh, if you're sitting on Shabbos and you want to read a book, what type of books are you allowed to read on Shabbos? And then it discusses, for example, if you want to read the book of Josephus, okay, they didn't have that many books back in the days that weren't Jewish, right? If you were Jewish, how many quote-unquote, non-Jewish books that you have in your house that, you know, the Code of Jewish Law is not going to say, well, if you want to read uh, uh, War and Peace, huh? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. <laughs> you want to read War and Peace, right? Discuss Jewish books, you know, or semi-Jewish books, novels. Okay? There's a lot of Jewish novels. Back then, what was a Jewish, not a book of scripture, but nevertheless a book that was semi-Jewish was Josephus. So it, it, it's, it's prominently featured in Jewish history. However, just so you know, uh, whenever we have a contradiction between what Josephus writes and what is written in Talmudic sources or Midrash, we will pick what it says in Talmudic sources and Midrash. Nonetheless, uh, Josephus is considered a reliable source despite his obvious interesting leanings. So let's get a little bit of a history on who Josephus was. Josephus, as he's known as Josephus Flavius, he was born a Jew, he died a Jew too. He was originally part of the rebellion against the Romans. The Roman Empire was conquering the Jewish nation, quelling a rebellion. And originally he was fighting against them. Eventually he joined forces with them and recognizing his talents, they took him in. And so he was around and so he could write down what was happening. So he's kind of an interesting character. On the one hand, at a certain point, he kind of picks the side of the Romans. But in many of his books, he defends the Jewish nation, the Jewish faith. Um, Again, interestingly enough, his, his last name that he took, Flavius, was to be like the emperor of Rome, although uh, his real name was Yosef ben Matisiao. So very, very fascinating uh, Jewish person. But he also portrayed in many of his books the Romans in a good light. Obviously, you know, uh, he was being censored by them. You can't really portray them in a negative light. So therefore, many of his... Um, what he writes could be suspect, but nevertheless, he's considered a very good source. So Josephus is an insider in the Roman war. 
Now, by the way, he wasn't the only Jew as an insider in the Roman war. There was another Jew who was second in command. Who destroyed the temple? Which, which general destroyed the temple? Anybody knows? Which Roman general? Titus. Titus. Yeah, Titus. Yeah, first it was a general called Vespasian, and he took the siege on Jerusalem. He became emperor. He left. And Titus, as we know, Titus the wicked, and he took it a step further. Titus had another Jew in his cabinet, and I, I, I saved this name earlier. So it's interesting, as you can always imagine, Jews were on, were on all sides of the war. We can never lose, right? It's like the Rothschilds. They, 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 they uh, bankrolled both sides of the war, right? You can never lose. They say actually during the First World War, like Jews were on both sides because Jews were both in the German army and in the other armies. And, you know, they would call over each other for Mincha together and then go back to their sides. Oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, unfortunately, you can have the same thing happening now where you have Jews fight, Jew fighting against you in uh, Ukraine and Russia, where it's going on too. Um, so there was a, I saved it over here, there was a Jew by the name of uh, Tiberius Julius Alexander. And uh, he was very involved. However, unlike Josephus, I don't think he, he ever was on the Jewish people's side. And um, he became the most powerful Jew of his age. And he was ranked one of the most prominent Jews in military history. So a fascinating guy, but we're not talking about him. We're going to talk about Josephus. Why? Because Josephus wrote down the history and he writes what happened when they were sitting in the war room discussing the destruction of the temple. Titus called a war cabinet and this had a discussion what should be done with the temple. Should it be destroyed or should it be left standing? And some of the generals maintained that the Jews will never surrender as long as they have their temple. And uh, in a sense, they're true. They were correct. However, just, however, uh, Titus maintained, he felt that it would be better to leave the temple. Why? The Romans were on to grandeur. They would rather conquer a nation and show A, that they conquered peacefully a nation. And second of all, they wanted to keep all the big buildings. They wanted to uh, they didn't want to destroy nice edifices. You know, they, they would like to keep it if at all possible. And on top of that, they wanted to send a message that officially they weren't against the Jewish religion, like uh, maybe except the Soviet Union, right? They officially kept synagogues open so that people can come. Of course, if you went there and the KGB saw you, afterwards you'd be dragged out to the KGB. But officially there was freedom of religion. Um, however, what ended up happening <clears throat> was uh, Titus closed the meeting and he said he had no interest in punishing the beautiful fortress of the temple due to the sins of the people. It was a beautiful edifice. And he said, even if the Jews used it as a fortress, he would try to preserve it at all costs. So you can imagine what we're hearing from here is that Titus, the one who destroyed the temple, really didn't want to destroy it. And however, in the end, the Jews fought tooth and nail against the Romans within and without the temple. And in the anger, one of the Roman soldiers set fire to the building. That is all what Josephus tells us. So let us take a look at uh, something interesting. Let's read from the book of Josephus. I'm going to share over here. Uh, let's see, share, okay. Let's take a look. Uh, no, I didn't wanna do that. And there, okay. Oh, you know, nothing is ever simple one appears, right? Okay, let's take a look. Um, 
Give me a second. Okay. So we say like this. The Roman, source one, the Roman advisors, so you have in here text, source number one, the Roman ministers and advisors of Titus told him, if you don't burn this building, you will never conquer this people. They are willing to die for it, which is unusual when you think about it. A building is just a building used for war. It's not the last standing thing. But we as Jews place a lot of importance on the Holy Temple. Titus revealed his opinion that he would not take revenge on over on the temple, which is not a living being for the sins of human beings, even if the Jews climbed into it to fight from it. Doing so would damage the Romans while leaving the edifice standing, would allow to shine as a jewel in their crown. The next day, the Romans gathered and set fire to the temple. They took logs and set them upon the golden gates of the temple and lit them on fire. The gold heated up. The wooden doors burned and they collapsed. The temple and the holy place became open tall. And on the ninth day of the fifth month, the same day it was open in the days of the Babylonians, while the Romans opened the gates of the temple and occupied it, a cry of joy erupted and the fire surrounded the temple, slowly burning through it. I just want to point out it says a cry of joy erupted, which sounds like the joy erupted from within, which is strange, which we're going to get into. The priests in the temple fought the Romans until they could no longer lift their arms in battle. When they realized that all was lost, they jumped and threw themselves into the fire that was raging in the temple. Many of the Jewish warriors hiding from the Romans perished in the holy fire along with the priest. They said life is not worth living without the temple. So it turns out um, Jose, um, Titus's ministers were correct. But an interesting line from this account is that a, a cry of joy erupted and the fire surrounded the temple, and we're going to discuss that soon, what, what, what's going on with the cry of joy erupted. But now we're going to get, and what we started with, with all my good jokes, about time. Let's take a look at text number two. So we have, it says clearly that it was destroyed on the 9th of Av, what is also known as Tishabav. but here's where things get curious. So let's read. This is from the Talmud. So the Talmud says like this, on the 7th, Gentiles entered the sanctuary, ate and desecrated it with fornication on the 7th and 8th. By nightfall on the 9th, they set it on fire and it burned for a full 24 hours. As it is stated, woe unto us for the day has declined, for the shadows of the evening are stretched out. So in other words, when it actually started to burn was in the eve of the 9th. So Judaism, well, not the eve of the 9th, the end of the 9th. In Judaism, a, night, a day starts at night. Right, so tonight will be another Jewish day. So the ninth of Av really starts at night. Um, so what it's saying is the fire did not start the evening of the ninth of Av. It was all the way the next day towards the evening, and it started to burn, and then it burned for 24 hours. And this is why the Talmud concludes. This is the meaning of Rabbi Yochanan's statement. Had I lived in that generation, I would have established a fast on the 10th because most of the sanctuary was burnt on that day. So what Rabbi Yochanan is saying is the temple really burnt down on the 10th. The fire was started on the 9th, toward the end of the day. But really, it was on the 10th. And this is where we're going to have our big question. In Jewish law, the real heavy morning is the eve and the next morning. By the, by the evening of the ninth of Av, in other words, in the daytime as the day continues, the morning gets lighter and lighter. So we're going to take a break, talk about the law. What does that mean? When the night of Tisha B'Av comes, you're supposed to 
start your fast, of course, and all the other things that are forbidden on Tisha B'Av. You know, no showers, no oils, no uh, no marital relations. Uh, you have to sit on low stools and no leather shoes. On top of that, you're mourning. Like a mourner who um, is very sad, you're not supposed to do anything that brings you joy. So that includes no uh, studying Torah. So it's a very, very heavy time. In fact, even the next morning, the morning of Tisha B'Av, we don't even put on tefillin. We're in such a state of mourning because a mourner, someone who just lost a parent before the burial, does not put on tefillin. They're, they're, they, are, they are exempt from all mitzvot. However, once it comes midday on the day of Tisha B'Av, suddenly everything lightens up. You can sit up on a regular chair. You can... Um, study certain sections of Torah or more sections of Torah. You can put on tefillin. And that's, in fact, what we're going to be doing here, just so you know. Uh, Saturday night, we're going to read the Book of Lamentations, sit very low. Sunday morning, we're going to pray and study very sad things. And then Sunday evening, we gather together again, put on the tefillin and talis, and uh, do the mincha and mar of service and read the Torah. It's the only time of year, really, where we wear tefillin by mincha. Anyways, so what we see from here is that the morning, one more thing, you, you have to fast to the end of the day, though. By midday, you can't start to eat. And so what's interesting is that the fast, that the um, heavy morning lightens up as we get closer to uh, towards the end of the day, which is odd because the end of the day is when the fire started. Now, on another hand, it is interesting that the idea that the temple burned into the tenth also has application in Jewish law. So in a regular year where Tisha B'Av falls out on the ninth of Av, many of the morning customs of the nine days continue all the way through the tenth of Av midday. What that means is um, no showers if you do that, no um, music, no meat, no travel. So typically in a regular Tisha B'Av, let's say Tisha B'Av was a Monday, all the way till Tuesday midday, you would not be allowed to uh, travel. You would not be allowed to take showers, would not be allowed to listen to music, drink wine, uh, eat meat, and so on and so forth. This year, it's different because this year, Tisha B'Av is actually on Shabbos. And since Tisha B'Av is on Shabbos, we don't fast on Shabbos, so we fast on Sunday. And therefore, once uh, the fast is over, we're already at the end of the 10th day, so we don't need to continue any morning. But here we see that the fact that the temple continued burning into the 10th of Av, certain customs of mourning continue in the 10th of Av, which seemingly would tell me that the end of the day of the 9th of Av should be the heaviest period of mourning. So again, I'm going to recap. Today, the fast of the 9th of Av is held in the 9th of Av. However, certain customs of the fast of the 9th of Av lighten up once you get to the afternoon, which seemingly it should be the opposite. Because in the afternoon of the ninth of Av is when the temple started burning. Um, so let's read the text that actually tells us that things lighten up. Let's take a look here. See, so it says like this. Uh, this is from the, the shortened version of the Code of Jewish Law, source number three. It is customary not to sit on a bench during the night and day until the afternoon. We sit on the floor. In the afternoon, it is permitted. On top of that, what other things lighten up? He brings here that there's a special prayer that we say on the afternoon of the ninth of Av. 
What is that prayer? That is the prayer of Nachem. What does Nachem mean? Anybody? What does Nachem mean? It's a consolation, like consolation. A relief. Consolation, very good. So consolation means things are already getting better, right? In other words, for example, we have now during the three weeks, we have what's called the three prophecies of doom. And then we have the Shiva Denachamta, the seven prophecies of consolation. So already in the afternoon of Tisha B'Av, we uh, start to read the, the, the uh, prayer of consolation. Let's read what it says. This is what we read in the prayer. Let me just uh, uh, vibrate. Okay. Console, Lord, our God, those who mourn for Zion, those who mourn for Jerusalem and the city that is mourning and its ruins despised and desolate. And then it continues. We're asking God to console us. And I'm not going to read the whole prayer. It's a special prayer. It is only said in the afternoon of Tisha B'Av. And so what I'm getting from here is that it's odd that you only read the idea of consolation in the afternoon of Tisha B'Av. Again, going back to this idea, the timing is off. Back to our jokes about time, but the timing is off. That's really how we were starting. The timing is off. It would make more sense that the heavy duty morning should be done at that time. Why would consolation only start at that point in time? Questions or comments? Obviously, I'm presenting with one question. My question is, of course, why in the afternoon of the ninth of Av does the morning seem to abate when that's really when the burning started happening? Um, but anybody's any questions or comments? About Tisha B'Av, nine days. Push up Tisha above. No? Okay. Either everything is clear as day or clear as mud. One of the two. Okay. Uh, one second. All right. So the answer is going to be learned from the Arizal. The Arizal, if you anybody here ever heard of the word Lurianic Kabbalah, Lurianic Kabbalah, Lurianic Kabbalah means the Kabbalah of, of Luria, Isaac Luria. Yeah, Isaac Luria. Yep, yep. Lurianic Kabbalah. And for those who are a uh, cheap plug, for those who are going to come to Israel with me oh, in, uh, in March, we're going to hopefully, God willing, we'll make it to the uh, grave of uh, Darizal. That you? will be Korea. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Right. His passing was uh, two days ago. His passing anniversary was passing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. So Dari Kadosh. I know my son is called Ari. I think somebody else's baby is going by the name Ari. Uh, but And I do have a picture of holding up Ari by the Arizal's grave. It looks cool, but... Uh, Arizal is actually just a acronym. His real name was not, he is known as Ari, but it means uh, Rabbi Yitzchak, anyways, Isaac or whatever. Uh, Rabbi Isaac Gloria, as he's called. And so he discusses why is it that in the afternoon of Tishabav do we suddenly start to get happy? And he quotes from the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, there's something very interesting. Uh, it's in the book of Psalms. It is Psalm 79. So that's one text I forgot to pull up. Uh, I believe it's 79. Of course, whenever you search the book of Psalms, you have to make sure that you type in the word Chabad afterwards. Otherwise, you'll come up with a lot of different versions of the book of Psalms. Okay, so let me show you over here uh, the book of Psalm 79. So that Rizal points to a very fascinating 
Psalm. In Psalm 79, he says like this, Mizmar la'asaf, a song of Asaf. Elohim, O God, nations have come into your heritage, and so God's heritage is Israel and the Holy Temple. Timu they have defiled your Holy Temple. Samu et they made Jerusalem into heaps. And he continues along and on and on and on about the terrible things that happened. And Arizal asks a very simple question. Why does it start off as being called Mizmar la'asaf, a song of Asaf? It should maybe be called a kinot of Asaf, a lamentation of Asaf. In other words, Asaf was somebody who lived during the destruction of the temple. As we know, King David, when he wrote the book of Psalms, it wasn't his Psalms. He was quoting either Psalms from the past or the future. And uh, Asaf was talking about a time, as you can see, when his temple would be defiled, when Jerusalem would be in heaps. And as you can read there, all the terrible, terrible calamities that happened. So the question is, why is Asaf rejoicing? And this will go back to what we read earlier in Josephus, when Josephus said a similar thing, that when the doors of the temple opened and it was burning, there was a cry of joy that was heard. What we're gathering is that at the midst of the most terrible destruction of the temple, there was a certain happiness that the Jews were having. That's what we're gathering. In other words, we asked, our main question of the class was, why is it in the evening when the temple started to burn, when it actually started to burn, that's when the mourning uh, abates a little bit. And we're getting to our answer in that we see that even in the original destruction, the moment and the beginning of destruction, in a sense, there's a sense of joy. Of course, it's not joyous, but there is a sense of joy in the temple that people were joyous. Here, Asaf is saying in Mizmar, there's a song. There's something good going on in the fact that the temple is burning. And what is it? And so the Rizal explains to us, and he says like this. And here we're going to go back into uh, where it says destruction revealed love, if you have that in there. So let me, let me share over here, page seven. Okay. So he says like this. Um... The Arizal explains the Chara Kavanot. The issue can be, okay. The Talmud explains that, th that at the outset, the enemies wanted to kill the Jewish people. The Jews thought that they would never recover from the blow. They would be annihilated by the sword of the enemy. When they saw the flames on the temple on the afternoon of the 9th of Av, they rejoiced and sang a hymn. They found soul. Is him the right word? Is that how you pronounce it? Him? Yep. It's not they then. Okay. Uh, they found solace because if God would not have spent his fury on the sticks and stones, he would have done so on the people. As our sages said, he vent, sorry, he vented his fury and kindled a flame in Jerusalem. So be careful. It's on Facebook. Okay. If you think about it historically, God, and we spoke about the vengeful God a couple times, but if you look in the Torah, <clears throat> if we want to talk about the vengeful God, God is not always so forgiving of those who make mistakes. Uh, we can go back. Sodom and Gomorrah, annihilated. Generation of Noah, annihilated. The Egyptians that chased the Jews, annihilated. The seven nations of the land of Israel, annihilated. And so here, the Jews were putting God to the test. They had, so to speak, reached the pinnacle. They had gotten their temple. And 
now they had obviously sinned and God was taking it from them. And based on history, and again, this is not 2,000 years of Jewish history yet. It was only about 1,000 years of Jewish history at this point, a little longer. We obviously today almost have the feeling we're sure that we're always going to be around. You know, we've been through so much, and, and so many times they try to kill us. We're still around. But at that point, if you can imagine, the Jews had this feeling, what is God going to do? Is he going to get rid of us? And in fact, as Titus himself was saying, he would rather kill the people and not kill the temple. But that's not how God thinks. God rather would rather take out his anger on the temple versus taking out his anger on the people. And I'll say that again. God preferred to take out his anger on sticks and stones than to take out his anger on the people. And that is why, and that is why, um, when the temple was being destroyed, when the temple was being destroyed, the people were in a sense rejoicing because they realized that God was saying, okay, you sinned, you may lose your, your ability to stay in this land. You may lose your temple, but you are always going to be around. To uh, Tipora's question, just, I don't want to get anybody sidetracked, but the destruction of the temple was the fullness of sin in this case because they were sinning for a while. Anyways, um, so this is the joy that the Jewish people had when uh, everything was going wrong. And so in a sense, there's a sense of joy. So here's kind of a sense of joy in our destruction of the temple. What, what's the joy? The fact that God loves us. This is the ultimate expression that God loves us. And what do I mean? Love, or you know what, I'll put it this way. Some people think that God doesn't love the Jews or his people. Some people think that God loves the mitzvahs, okay? Right. And that's why they say, well, the point, well, you know, God says, you do the, you do the mitzvahs, I'll reward you. You do the, you do, you do the sins, I'll punish you. It almost sounds like the Jews maybe were inconsequential. Uh, what does God love? God loves his mitzvahs. They need to get done. So we're supposed to do them. So when we do it, he loves us. When we don't do it, he punishes us. But that would not be God loving us. That would God be loving his mitzvahs. Take another example. Take, for example, you have a marriage. When the other partner in the marriage is doing everything that you like. Ah, you love them. Everything is good. When suddenly they're doing the things you don't like, uh, you don't love them anymore. So then you don't really love that person. Now, now marriage is complicated, but let's get to children. Children is, a, is, is an even simpler way of putting it. If you only love your kids when they're doing what you want them to do, when they're following uh, the, the, you know, the, everything that you've told them to do, that's maybe not love. That could be self-love. You love yourself. You know, the, you, see, you see yourself in them and they make you proud and you can boast to your friends about how good your kids are. But real love of your children is expressed when they're doing, doing the wrong thing and you love them anyways. When they're doing the things you don't like. When Zomni goes around and destroys the whole kitchen and we still love him anyways, right? And, okay, that's little kids. Big kids, little kids, little problems, right? Destroying the kitchen. Big kids are bigger problems as, as you all know over here. And so that's where love is really expressed. And so that's what the Jewish people saw. When the Jewish people sinned and God did not destroy them, that was actually the ultimate expression of God's love for us. It's an odd way of thinking about it, but that's when God showed that he truly loved us. As long as we were doing what he likes and he was giving us all the, all the benefits and we were the top nation. And as it says in the Torah, if you follow my commandments and you do my ways and I will place you above all the other nations, that does not necessarily demonstrate God's love for us. Maybe he likes what we're doing for him. But when we do the wrong thing, 
when we are going against his will. And nevertheless, God says, I'm going to take on my anger, not on you, but on things you have. I'm going to allow you to remain for the long haul. I'm going to preserve you. And wherever you are, I'm going to allow you to sustain there. And eventually you will come back to your land. That is when God showed his true love. And that is why, in a sense, when it comes to the afternoon of Tisha B'av, when the temple started to burn, when we realized God was not going to take out his anger on us, but on the temple, that's when we start to say the, 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 the uh, items of consolation. Because there is a consolation knowing now. We now know that God has us for the long haul. He loves us with a deep bond. He will never let go of us. He will never get rid of us. He will always hold on to us and hold us dear. And that's why when the temple was being destroyed and the doors were open and the, and the temple was being burned, that's why you heard those cries of joy. That's why Joseph was saying cries of joy. That's why Asaf says, Mizmar la Asaf, a song of Asaf as the temple is being destroyed. Because that is God's true love. And um, you have this over here. That there's uh, The Talmud actually gives an example of this. Uh, the Talmud says, Sorry, the Midrash, the Midrash, the Midrash Eicha. So Eicha is the Book of Lamentations. And the Midrash on Eicha, and this is source number seven, says like this. Let's take a look over here. Let's read there the example the Midrash says. It says like this. God has vented his fury, poured out his blazing wrath. He has kindled a fire in Zion. It is written in him by Asaph, O God, heathens have vented your domain. This verse should have called it a lament. A dirge, don't know what a dirge is, but or elegy of Asaf. Why does it say a hymn by Asaf by way of a parable? A king prepared a wedding canopy for his son, erecting it and decorating it. His son got into bad behavior, so the king went over to the canopy and tore up the curtains and smashed the decorative stalks. The princess tutor fashioned a flute out of a stalk and began playing music. They said to him, The king overturned his son's wedding canopy and you play music. He replied, I sing because he overturned the wedding canopy and did not vent his anger on his son. So by the way, next time you break your child's iPhone, just quote them the Midrash over here. Okay. So too, they said to Asa, God has destroyed the temple and you sit and sing. He said to them, I sing because God vented his fury on sticks and stones and did not vent his fury on Israel. As it is written, he has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed her foundations. Just one second to lower that. Let's see in here. Um... So this idea is expressed in another aspect of uh, in Jewish literature. But before I do that, I, again, I just want to recap. We started off discussing the laws of the nine days and how uh, the Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the morning starts off really heavy and gets lighter. We wanted to know why does it get lighter, seemingly the worst part of the day. And the answer is, in a sense, there is a deeper love that's expressed. And so here already you can see the positive and the negative. And so as we go around during these nine days and Tisha B'Av, although on the one hand there's a, there's a deep sense of sadness, there's also a deep sense of hope. And so we always have to remember that deep sense of hope. That's what I mentioned in the, in the Shul and Shabbos. That's why many people have the custom of studying about the temple now, because at the same time of the sadness, there's a deep sense of hope that we try to bring into all the sadness. But I want to uh, show you this fascinating Talmudic um, uh, statement. So, in the in the in the temple, um, there the most important place was the. I spoke about this in my speech uh, this week. The most important place was Kedush, Kedush. the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies, what was sitting there was a ark, 
with uh, tablets in it, the tablets of Ten Commandments. And on top of it were these cherubs, which we spoke about again on Shabbos. And these cherubs, they had wings. And the question is, there are different verses about the cherubs. Some say they faced each other and some say they didn't face each other. Uh, different verses. So this question is actually asked in the Talmud, in the Talmud tract, Baba Batra, 99a. And so the Talmud says like this, let's read. How did the cherubs stand? Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Lazar. One said they faced each other and one says they were back to back facing the walls of the sanctuary. But according to one who says they faced each other, we must ask, isn't it written and their faces were towards the house? This is not difficult. Here it speaks of when the Jewish people are doing the will of God. And there it speaks of when the Jewish people were not doing the will of God. So when they do the will of God, they would face each other. When they would not do the will of God, they would not face each other. And here the Talmud in Tractate Yuma continues. Rabbi Katina said when the Jewish people would make pilgrimage for the festival, the curtains would be rolled up for them and they would be shown the cherubs which were intertwined with each other. They would be told, see how you are beloved before God, like the love of male and female. The verse states, and the cherubs were, Kemar Ishbiliot. What does that mean? Rabbi Barabshila said, like a man intertwined with his mate. So sometimes they were hugging each other. Um, and here, I'm not going to read the text yet. All right, so what we get from here is that the cherubs would generally either face each other or face out, depending on how the Jews were acting. And facing in would mean that God was showing that he loved them, and therefore on the holidays, the priests would open up the curtains so that people could see into the Holy of Holies and see the cherubs hugging each other. Now, the Talmud has a fascinating description of the destruction of the temple and about Titus as he entered the temple. And Titus really was, was not just felt it his, you know, God's duty to destroy the temple, but he really, uh, so to speak, felt he was fighting God. And so the Talmud describes when he got to the Holy of Holies, it says first he came to the curtain that separates the Holy and the Holy of Holies. It says he took a sword and he slashed the curtain. It says when the curtain was slashed, blood started pouring out. The Talmud says Titus believed that he um, had killed, so to speak, Hashem, God forbid. Of course, not possible. That's how he felt. Of course, to us, it means God was showing his sadness. And then it says he stepped into the Holy of Holies, and there in the Holy of Holies, he took a harlot and did a sin in the Holy of Holies. So he was a person that blasphemed God and really wanted to show his contempt. And But also when he got in there, he saw the cherubs. Now, mind you, in the second temple, there, were, there was no ark. However, there were cherubs. There was no ark because it was hidden during the end of the days of the first temple. So there was no ark there. But cherubs were sitting there. And the cherubs were intertwined with each other. And the Talmud tells us, they, the, the Romans thought this was laughable. What type of... Can you imagine in uh, the holiest place, okay, Jews are all uh, praying to one place, and obviously what is known as the, as the you know, worst sin, so to speak, in any religion is sexual sin, right? The worst sin. And here, in the Jewish people's holy of holies, in their holy temple, the place where they serve and, and face and pray and daven to, what's sitting there in their holy of holies are angels that are hugging each other like a husband and wife. 
And so the, 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 the Goyim, as they say, the Goyim, they, they thought it was uh, a little uh, Meshuggah. Let's read over here. Um, Rach Lakish said, when the Gentiles entered the sanctuary, they saw the cherubs intertwined with one another. They took them out to the market and said, these Jews whose blessing is blessed and whose curse is cursed, should they be occupied in such matters? They immediately destroyed the cherubs as it is stated that all who honored her debased her because they have seen her nakedness. So they 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 were they took this as a way of belittling the Jewish faith, saying this is what your Jewish faith is about. You know, uh, is this uh, some uh, what you know? I know this like some Indian religions, which uh, you know uh, they 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 uh, serve sexuality, so to speak. But a uh, normal, typical religion, what, what type, you know, what type of religion is this? So the question is, all right, putting the Romans question aside, you know, who, what, why do we have people hugging each other? Why was it, putting that question aside, why was it that the cherubs were facing each other at the time of the destruction of the temple? Now, normally you would know the answer, but hopefully today you know the answer. Today you know the answer, but today you've learned that at the destruction of the temple, although on the outside God was angry, it was the deepest expression of God's love. God showing that he loves us to the point that despite his great anger at what we had done, he was not willing to destroy us. And to demonstrate his great anger, he even made the cherubs hugging each other. Let's take a look here at the text. Um, we find a similar expression in the Talmud. When the Gentiles entered the sanctuary, they saw the cherubs intertwined with one another. At the time of the destruction, the cherubs were intertwined with each other, which is an indication of God's unmitigated closeness and love to the Jewish people where we are all one entity. And Okay. So that is the first section of what we're going to discuss tonight. The next section, since we're running out of time, I'm going to make it quick. Um, so what have we discussed? Again, we discussed Tammy, take a picture of the graphic organized. What? Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. Was that me? Yes, I'm not on mute. Oh, mute me. Okay. Um, so what we have till now is a fascinating way of looking at the destruction. Till now, most would look at the destruction. God doesn't love us anymore. God has divorced us. God has casted us aside. Um, but in fact, it's the opposite. To no other no other time has God gotten angry at a nation and treated us this way, where at the same time that he gets angry at us, he preserves us all along because in truth, he really, really loves us and it's the ultimate expression of his love, just as if you have a child or a spouse or whatnot, when they do something that doesn't please you, um, the ultimate expression of love is actually at that moment. And with this, we're going to explain something that's interesting that I alluded to on Shabbos, uh, not this past Shabbos, but the Shabbos before when I confused everybody about what the Rosh Chodesh is. But anyways, um, right now we are in the month of Av, but the month of Av has another name. What is that other name of the month of Av? Menachem Av. Menachem Av. Chodesh Menachem Av, the month of Menachem Av. So the month is actually called Av, but we call it Menachem Av. What does the word Menachem mean? Comfort. The word Menachem Av means comfort. And the question is, that um, it's not a great month. You know, maybe we should call it Menachem Elo, Menachem Tishrei, but uh, the month of Av is a time of sadness where we sit, lament. On the day of Tisha B'Av itself, we cannot learn any Torah. 
what good can there be in the month of Av? So we've already presented one idea today. We presented the idea that the comfort in the month of Av is the fact that God loves us. But I'm going to present to you one other good thing that can come out of the month of Av. Uh, some level of uh, comfort. Um, let me just find a text here. Just one second. So again, one idea that we had was that the fact that God loves us, but that is from God's perspective. What about our perspective? What good is there in the destruction? Okay, so again, we we understand that God loves us, but what good can we get out of the month of Av? What positive attribute, what positive feelings can we pull from the month of Av? So again, what I'm trying to say is, yes, we understand God loves us. Uh, God has demonstrated his love to us by destroying the temple. But there's something positive that we have to gain from destruction. In other words, destruction is not only to get back to where you were. It has to be we're going to get somewhere better, right? If after 2,000 years, God gives us the same exact thing, it wasn't worth it, right? It's, uh, oh, I actually was watching this video. The Rebbe, somebody came to the Rebbe, was talking about how we want the base of English. And the Rebbe was just saying, you know, if, I, uh, if God took away the temple for 2,000 years, hopefully when it comes back, it's a little bit better. You know, it's, uh, it was worth all that time that we were missing it. Um, so what can we uh, pick up from the month of Av? And the answer is that the desire and the yearning that appears when there is a lack. We know in general in life, when we have something, we have trouble feeling gratitude. When we have what we need, the appreciation is much harder. However, when we lack something, we feel it acutely, suddenly we have a greater appreciation for what we're missing. So for example, everybody loved to go to Shul every week, right? Everybody loved to go to Shul every week. And suddenly Corona came and we couldn't go to Shul every week. Suddenly everybody is missing the Shul and Shul, they're missing the Kiddush, right? Well, you had a week you're missing. Or travel or vacations or I don't know, whatever things that people were missing over COVID again. But now once we have all these things back, and most people are going to revert to their old ways where um, they don't have so much of an appreciation for it because it's always there, right? Your health. We all take our health for granted until something is missing. It's very, very hard to feel the acute desire for what you have when you have it. Let's take somebody who's born religious, somebody who's not born religious, somebody who's born religious, Great, it's nice, whatever. They don't appreciate it. But somebody's not born religious. Sometimes they, they start up with this great desire and passion and feeling towards the religion as they discover more and more things and the beauty of it. Uh, or somebody, let's say, discovering Shabbos for the first time or Torah study for the first time. There's this amazing uh, energy and passion that comes along with it. Well, we all know that anybody who's ever gone through that period, uh, typically after a couple of years, that passion can fade. Because now you've had it for a while and you get used to it. It's like any other area of life. And marriages all start off with great passion and love. They'll care for each other forever. And then 50% of marriages end up in divorce, right? So it's very, very hard to maintain feeling for 
um, something when you have it. And so in a sense, this is really the benefit of what we have when we don't have the temple. King David said like this. He said, My soul is thirsting for you. In a thirsty place. Without water. King David says, My soul is thirsting for you, God, in a place without water. What he means is, when I, when I don't feel close to you, I am thirsting for you. All right? But then King David in the book of Psalms says something interesting. Then he says, Cain Bakodesh Chaziticha. He says, So may it be when I am in the temple that I will see you in the same way. And that was what King David was saying is, When I'm in danger, I have a strong desire and thirst for you. When I feel far, I want to feel close. When it's Yom Kippur, I want to feel close to you. But he says, Cain Bakodesh Chaziticha. I wish. I had that same desire when I would be in the holy place. How many people today say, oh my gosh, I wish I lived in the time of King David or King Saul or, uh, of course, with an iPhone. But, uh, you know, if only I lived in the times of Moses, I would believe if only I lived in the times of uh, King David and King Saul and, 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 and or the Rebbe, you know, or the, all these things that people come up with. If only, but, you know, if you were around then, you might have been like the rest of the people that were around then that took it for granted. Okay, so yeah, you say, oh, if only I lived in the times of Moses. Oh, I would be super religious. I would have followed. I would have never, I would have never been one of those people that, uh, you know, one of those Jews that complained all the time. I would have been into it, right? I uh, don't know. don't know. People don't change so much. Uh, we're still people. Uh, what you have, when you have something, you don't have that great desire for it. And uh, this is one of the positive traits that comes out of the month of Av. Is in the month of Av when we are saddened over what we have and we are yearning and desiring for the temple, that desire and yearning alone is a very special thing. Um, and the fact that we as Jews 3,000 years later are still begging and demanding and desiring for the return of the Mashiach, and we are still mourning on Tisha B'Av, how many nations out there are mourning their loss of, of whatever it is 2,000 years later, right? You're not going to find a nation. Uh, you're going to find Romans who are like, oh, well, I can't believe the Roman Empire fell apart. So you're going to find, uh, you know, maybe you still have uh, Putin is upset that the USSR fell apart. That's not so long ago, right? Uh, he's, he's uh, you have many people saying, oh, I wish the Tsar of Russia was still around or uh, whatever, you know, all these things. Um, time goes by and you lose the desire for it. But the fact that we, uh, thousands of years later are still desiring the temple and we didn't get used to it that alone is a sense of comfort and that's why the month in a sense is called the Kodesh of Menachem of the month of Menachem so let's let's just take a look over here at the text okay so the text says share we're going to skip all the way like I said I don't like to hold on to you too long um this is going to be text number B, the power of yearning. Okay. All right. In Jewish law, three years constitute a chazaka permanence, right? That's why I did my class this week, so it shouldn't be three weeks. Because three times is a permanence. We have been in exile for far longer. We should have been accustomed to the state of exile. Nevertheless, we see the Jewish people have maintained a yearning and desire to leave the exile throughout this time, 
even when living in free countries which do, which do not hamper Jewish life. This is not only a thought, we verbalize the desire three times a day during the Amida, cause the sign of David to flourish. May our eyes behold that you return to Zion. Blessed are you who restores his divine presence to Zion. Whenever 10 Jews gather to pray, these statements are publicly declared by the prayer leader. And of course, we say it sincerely. After all, God sees directly into our hearts. hearts. So who would be a fool to pray without being sincere about the very words he says? Hmm, hope so. Now, our sages have said that when we were exiled to Edom, God accompanied us. In our day, God is primarily found in exile with us, which gives us an advantage over the land of Israel. Why then do we yearn to return to Israel? Also, what is the purpose of longing? As my father, the previous Rebbe famously said, we didn't choose to be exiled, nor can we choose to be redeemed. Ultimately, we need to wait for the Mashiach. So why bother yearning for redemption? The explanation, yearning itself is a source of comfort. When we recall that we've been exiled for 1900 years, and we therefore yearn for redemption, it serves as a source of comfort. It reminds us that the work is almost done and very little remains. We will conclude God's mission and leave very soon. The longing becomes more powerful when it's verbalized, as we mentioned earlier, because it makes an impression on animal souls. We even express our longing in our customs of refraining from eating and drinking, an element of our lives which binds spiritual and physical together. That is how Jewish people make yearning tangible in a physical way, right? But whenever we eat bread, we discuss, we, we also, in the blessings, we want Jerusalem back. Therefore, when the month of Av arrives, the Jewish people remind themselves they are in exile and the temple is destroyed. This alone brings a sense of comfort of Menachem of, in that spirit, God abolishes our mourning, transforms it to joy. And in the words of Rashi, he will take every Jew by the hand from his place. As the verse states, he will be gathered up one by one, the children of Israel. We then have nothing to fear and he will bring us the true and complete redemption and rebuilding of the temple. Uh, I think I read that a little too fast. But anyway, um, the point over here being is that yearning alone is important. And as I said earlier, this is a lesson in general in our lives um, that we should truthfully yearn for things even when we have it. The power of desiring is an important thing, right? Where people talk about gratitude. Like I said earlier, it's very hard to feel gratitude for things that you already have. And this feeling and longing for the temple, we are praying that not only we have it when we don't have the temple, but we pray that we have it even when we have the temple. But we can actually live this in our lives today. Even things that we have, uh, we should always try and maintain that yearning, whether it's to Judaism. Maybe you've been keeping Shabbos for a while. Maybe you've been doing it for a while already. You've gotten used to it. You've forgotten the beauty of it. You've forgotten how wonderful and special it is. Maybe you've been praying for a while. In the beginning, it was special because uh, it was nice to take a break and contemplate and think and meditate for a moment. But now you've gotten used to it. Now you're reading the words. Or maybe you've been studying Torah for a while. And the beginning was exciting and it was different, but now you're, you're reading the same things. You're not getting as deep as you were before. Uh, we always have to have that sense of yearning in everything that we do. The sense of yearning alone is such an important character trait. And so the month of Menachemav, the positive character trait that it brings out in us, and we know that positive trait is ultimately what will bring Mashiach, is that yearning for the future, that yearning for the redemption. And even though we've been in exile for so long, when we could have gotten used to the state of affairs, we could have gotten used to the fact that we're in exile, right? Isn't it a comfortable life? Why should we care for the Mashiach? But no, we desire and we yearn for the Mashiach for many, many reasons. I think I've discussed them in other previous Mashiach courses. Um, but hopefully, even for the simple reason, we should want and yearn and simply desire for the Mashiach to be at uh, that ultimate uh, day uh, when the world will be in its perfection. And ultimately, this world is not perfect. It's as nice as your life is, and the nice car that you have, and the college you're going to graduate from, and uh, the books that you like to read, and the movies you like to watch, 
and uh, the money you're going to make and the, your beautiful family that you have and your rabbi with the great jokes that you have. Uh, you know, despite all these wonderful things in your life, uh, life is not perfect. There's still a lot, a lot of things in this world that go on that um, we're definitely not in a perfect world. Might be seen better than it was before. And I think that's because we're getting closer to the Mashiach. But we should always have that thirst and desire for more. And so this is what I'm going to leave you with today. Uh, the two positive, we said seeing the positive and the negative. The two positive things that we learned from the month of Av, from the nine days from Tisha B'Av. Number one is this idea that God loves us. And he's decided that uh, he's going to take out his anger on sticks and stones. But he'll never hurt us. And uh, he and he shows his true love to us by destroying the temple. And uh, he's loves us and is waiting for us to uh, come back to him. And the second thing we learn from these days is uh, we see that Jews of the world over have been mourning the temple for thousands of years. And we haven't gotten bored of mourning for the temple. We have that yearning. And you want to bring that sense of yearning both for the temple and into all areas of your life and specifically your Jewish life. To always never never take anything for granted, never get used to status quo. Always bring passion and desire and yearning into your life. my soul thirsts for you. Our soul, our soul should always be thirsting for God and for the redemption, and it should always thirst for all those spiritual things that we have in our lives. Every single day that you get to pray, there should be another moment where you get to quench your thirst. Every single day we're thirsty. We drink, we drink right? And we never get bored of it. We, we drink every single day. We never get bored of it. We can pray every single day. We should never get bored of it. We can study every day. We should never get bored of it. We can keep Shabbos. We should never get bored of it. And if you start getting bored, that means it's time to refresh in your mind. Emotions start in the mind. Time to uh, recap and, and get your mind, get your mind going. And um, that is uh, the message that we have going into uh, Tisha B'Av. So hopefully this year, Tisha B'Av, you will see not just the negative as we cry, but also the positive, and you will try to both see God's love for you and try and reciprocate and love him back and try and add more passion and yearning and desire into your Jewish life. So thank you. I will uh, take questions now. And... Um...